It's true that humor and pleasure mute the sorrows that are inevitable in this fallen world. It's true in our culture that people masquerade about with smiles as walking in sorrow and sadness are often considered a show of weakness. The harder realities in the world are often tempered by vacations and video games and venues of every sort. And I'm not saying that the the godless world system fails wholesale at lamentation. That's not the case. But even in the deepest grief, there is often shallow introspection and certainly, certainly no correspondence to what God has declared to be true inside of grief. Yet this should not be so with those who have cast their care upon the man of sorrows. No, we'll not... will not foolhardily invite troubles into the spaces that God's carved out by his wisdom. But we do have the space afforded to us by God himself to linger in the minor key. It's okay to grieve and to be sorrowful. And I think a text like this gives us that kind of permission to approach the Lord and allow him to hear from us about our deepest experiential dungeons that this fallen world possesses. And what we'll inevitably find in turning to the scriptures is that those dungeons aren't devoid of some surprising and very kind outlets to the suffering servant's son, Jesus our Lord. The light beams of Psalm 6 can illumine our journey even when the darkness veils our lives or worse veils the good that God is shaping through our pain or even worse still when the darkness places a veil over God himself and we can't see him or his ways. A cursory reading of this psalm easily shows us that things are not stable for Jesse's son who in days past cut his teeth on the peaceful hillside blades of grass while shepherding flocks of sheep. The simpler life of shearing wool and composing music and being playfully picked upon by his older brothers probably seemed like ages ago for David. There was no more living on the legendary status of slaying beasts and men in various fields of life. A king-sized amount of trouble and stresses are now residing in the recesses of our broken-hearted, praying poet, King David of Israel. Darkness has found him. Well, note first with me, in David's life we find this cry of sorrow. Look at verse 1. We see spiritual alarm here. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. The words rebuke and discipline as well as anger and wrath are synonymous. David's pleading against God's displeasure and he's, over, he's overloaded with the very thought. It was time to pray. Remember the Psalms are songs. So it was time for David to, to in his sorrow, pick up the stringed instrument and pour out his soul before the God of his life. But what, was, what was the central issue David was wrestling with? Was it David's sin or was it David's circumstances? Were the events of his his bemoaning out of his control 
or because he tried to seize control that belonged only to the Lord. And it seems like if we read the life of David and consider where David is in this particular psalm, there's a mix of various factors that contribute to David's sorrow when we consider his life. In 2 Samuel 11 and onward, we, when we read of David's involvement with Bathsheba and his responsibility of the death of Bathsheba's husband Uriah, and that that was David's unwise uh, working is an understatement. He acted in a, a self-gratifying wickedness. And that sin affected some other issues that were swirling in the kingdom. So everything sort of mixed together here. It was many of those other problems. Like the rape of his daughter by one of his sons. A son murdering another son. And these were some of the details that brought David to this moment of alarm before God in prayer. And when things are amiss, when, when it seems like life is snowballing, it's not unwise to search our own hearts, is it? To reflect on matters of the heart, motivations, inclinations, attitudes, consequences. A slice, a slice of David's current angst was him looking at himself and he's just thinking back and he's drawing a normal conclusion for those that seek to live a life of trust in the Lord. I might be under God's disciplining hand. Oh Lord, if I'm going to be spared, it's got to be you to spare me. Have you ever been there? Trying to figure out the recipe of some of your most gut-wrenching moments. Is it my sin? Is it my foolishness? Is it just life itself that throws curveballs to me? I think you've probably all been there on some level. But we can't ignore the other factors that brought David to this low place. You see, by most scholarly accounts, Psalm 6 does not move off the story of his throne-hungry son, Ab Absalom. And David's likely somewhere when he's writing this, well outside the city of Jerusalem. All has been shaken. Not only is he questioning his own character before God's face, but his family is an utter mess. Kind of like our families. Our families are messy, aren't they? His family's an utter mess. The nation that has been entrusted under his leadership is a house divided. And it's no wonder David cries out in verse 2, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I'm languishing. He wants a touch from heaven. He is thirsting for God's kindness and intervention. And in a series of events that seems to be working against King David, this high king is near rock bottom. His throne is not untouchable. His family is not shielded from the pains of sin and brokenness. His nation is not immune to bloodthirsty political posturing. His past is not sanitized. So what will calm David's terror? What will bring him solace and restoration? Well, the answer is the very truth that brings all of God's children to health and wholeness. It's an assurance of the grace of God. An assurance of His grace. In church, is it not lingering with the gospel? Considering the truths of Christ and Him crucified in our place. 
and loving Him and thanking Him for that. Grace softens our fears and calms our anxieties in this world. If we would but grab a hold of it, cling to it, think upon it, praise the Lord for it. But lament and sorrow are sort of like that, uh, that sticky stuff that flies get caught in. It's, it's sticky. Grace, sorrow, and lament wear out its welcome often. At Southwoods, we've been discussing this lament again, not as an emotional bridge that you need to cross, but as a, an emotional and spiritual arch to scale. And to scale anything is not easy, especially when we're deeply moved by sorrow. Because we can know all that we need to know and have really true joy and calm. Uh, all, we, all we need to know to have true joy and calm. But when we have sorrow, it's just hard to shake off the sense that we're just being chewed up and, and spit out. And sometimes the fragility of life is compounded and the arch of lament is, is often steepest when we seek to understand God and how he is weaving our lives like so and why he's weaving such odd and painful patterns into the tapestry of our lives. So much of the time life looks like an incoherent maze with no apparent exit. Life feels claustrophobic. And David's soul was greatly troubled, even frightened by all that he was going through. But instead of withdrawing, David took his anxious soul to the Father and he appealed to him according to his character. He is the God of all grace. The best grace. Dale Ralph Davis says it simply and powerfully. Sometimes this is your only stay in trouble. Simply what God has said about himself and about what he will do. <clears throat> David can't comprehend all that's happening, all that God is doing, so he crawls to the place where every parched soul can find refreshment and life. David calls out for what he's found in the Lord time and time again. Knowing God's severity, David appeals to grace. Be gracious to me, O oh Lord. In the state of his spiritual alarm, David calls out for grace, but does he get what he asked for? He's not finished describing his sorrow with vivid language. Here we also see these deep wounds. Be gracious to me, O oh Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O oh Lord, for my bones are troubled. You see, David is in need of God's balm. He's in He's begging for God's medicine. This word languishing is often used of crops that are withering. Well, David is withering. He needed the dew of God's presence and the nourishment of God's word and the healing showers of God's power. His bones were troubled. This probably signifies that the stresses inherent to his situation are affecting not just uh, his, his soul, but his body is diminishing in strength and function as well. And a quick study uh, in anxiety, and you'll see that, um, you know, anxiety affects us physically and sometimes very seriously. 
and the glaring connections to physical ailments when we have anxiety are clear. I mean, David has this rebellious son. He has this there's betrayal in his life of friends and advisors. The kingdom is crumbling. He has angry supporters who are leaning into political maneuverings instead of God's help and strength. And he's got months and even years of these events sort of stringed together. And the heat of it all might wither us too. Probably would. And many of us know the heat of life that withers both body and soul. And this is a natural transition to that all-important garden where the source of all godly pleasure experienced the heat of anguish himself. You see, here in this 9th century B.C. story of David, there is suspense. Will God spare me from the trappings of my troubled soul and my enemies? But in a 1st century garden, Outside of Jerusalem, there was no suspense from the sufferer. He knows, he knows he's going to die. He will be forsaken and he will bear the marks of his enemies and he will experience a double bear. He will bear the, the sin of his people and in turn will bear the very wrath, the weight of the wrath of God against the sins of those he's dying for. And the weight is something that no one else has ever carried. Yet the difference in David's sufferings and Jesus' sufferings does not take away the similarity of their sorrows. Their bitter cups weren't the same. No, but both were bitter cups nonetheless. And Jesus sympathizes with troubled bones. His father's face was turned away. Abandonment found him. Deep emotion filled him. Shallow friends betrayed him. Nobody eclipsed Christ in the lament department. But that doesn't make our pain less real. David's pain was no doubt raw. And the pain of it all hounded his joy and his peace. And part of the reason that Jesus Christ pleased the Father that he, that was that was that he became a, a high priest who would sympathize with the weaknesses of those in his kingdom. And sending Christ, the Godhead is now somehow closer to his people than they would have been otherwise. <clears throat> so when David languishes, and when we languish, Jesus does not fade into the background and offer us nothing. His incarnation 2,000 years ago is proof positive that he is committed to drawing near to us this very hour teaches us that there is no darkness we can traverse that he is not already traversed deeper still and david continues in verse six um uh, this is he's going down isn't he? this is this is deeply emotional i'm weary with my moaning every night i flood my bed with tears I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. These are just more physical descriptions of the whole person wilting under the high temperatures of life. David's body was tired. He couldn't sleep. His tear ducts were overworked. His couch was tissue. Often the heaviness of life's disturbances weigh more at night, don't they? 
at night. We're alone. We're exhausted from the normal rhythms. I remember bedtimes with my kids when they were smaller. Inevitably, a question about one of the mysteries of life would arise. Or some emotional nerve would be struck by a reflection of some kind. Some kind. Dad, the edge of my blanket is too rough. You know you've been there. Night is a, a vulnerable time for all ages, not just children. But it was not always that way with David as he passed through the many fires. Earlier in David's life, when he was evading Saul, remember he was evading Saul, he was throwing spears at him and having him come play music for him, but then started hating him and wanted to hunt him down and kill him. David ran for months and years about this from, from Saul. But David had a different experience in his bed. We read in Psalm 63, My mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night for you've been my help and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. Same man, still dogged by trouble, but with a different response. And isn't that a helpful reminder? Life will not always be as it is today for you. You may be in the grips of sorrow. I think, aren't we all, in to, to some degree, in the grip of just, we're in the doldrums about things. We're not seeing everybody that we used to see. Work is different. Our relationships with our spouses are stressed. And we're having, a, some of us are having to homeschool kids. What is that? I mean, we're all sort of down. But, you see, we have this word to us. This word that is helpful. And David is not, wasn't always in this Psalm 6 season. He was in a Psalm 63 season here. Well, maybe you are in a season of lament. Maybe you're flat worn out. Joy looks like a bustling highway from 25,000 feet up. It seems so distant and disconnected from what you're going through. But we're not to stoically, just passively, hold on to the lament that we have. We're to let our sorrows, this is what the psalm is doing, we're to let our sorrows loose upon the Lord. And I trust that one of the lessons he has for us in that dark place is that every lament actually has a shelf life. In fact, Christ didn't die to secure for you an eternal lamentation. It's not even close. The tomb, in fact, ensured a tomb for your every moan and every tear. And none of us are privy to his timed programming, just privy to his titanic promise that he will give all who trust in him these words, enter into the joy of your master. I long for that. But in the meantime, the psalmist lament gives us a voice when we've all but lost our own. There's this cry of sorrow, but he continues his cry. There's a cry for relief. Look at verse, look at verse 3. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, and here's the central question, how long? How long is this going to keep going? Will this ever end is the question. Author and founder of a, a ministry for disabled individuals called Joni and Friends 
Johnny Erickson Tata expressed the turmoil she waded through after the awful event of her breaking her neck in a diving accident in 1967, leaving her paralyzed from neck down. She'd been holed up for weeks in a dark room and she finally found herself praying, Lord, if I can't die, please show me how to live. Well, she climbed this arch of lament I mentioned a few minutes ago. And as many before and after, the question, how long found its way from her broken heart to this tearful prayer? And maybe you've scaled this rocky, slick, stormy bank. And maybe you voice those words aloud, or to the Lord even. How long? Maybe you're on the edge and breaking in some way. The adage is true that time flies when you're having fun, but doesn't time snail along when life is difficult? It seems, I'm telling you, it seems like two years ago from March till now. It seems like it's been so long ago. But this is, this is what Johnny Erickson taught us. Uh, cried out Lord if I can't die please show me how to live she was she was mulling over this question for a long time will this ever end how long is this going to go on my love for ocean creatures was stoked by watching and reading about the deep sea probes of Jacques Cousteau maybe you're not old enough to know that name uh, but my father-in-law or my father uh, stepfather received National Geographic magazines, uh, and I, I devoured those when I was younger. You see, honest questions with the Lord are often like the deep sea probes. The voyagers find never find all the answers, but they do find things that are significant and relevant and helpful to their journey and research. And I'm reminded of Jesus as he encountered the sincere sufferers in the Gospels. Think about Jesus and how he went about his business. He was going about his father's business. Sometimes he was very frank. Let the dead bury the dead. Remember that. Sometimes Jesus didn't wait for faith to show mercy. He showed mercy to the demoniacs, the garrison demoniacs. They didn't ask for it. He showed them mercy anyway. Sometimes he had more important things to say than healing itself. Remember he declared forgiveness over the life of the paralytic. But every time the brokenhearted found something significant and relevant and helpful in their broken journey. And there's not one thing different about Jesus today. So we're to go to Him. You have that dull, piercing ache about something in your life. You're to go to Him and say, Lord, how long? You go to Him with your bundled confusion and say, Lord, how long? You go to him because he has a track record of hearing his people cry out, how long? Remember Exodus. I've heard the cries of my people. We're to go to him. And when we go to him, we'll not walk away empty. He'll give us something to endure and to press on in faith and trust. Look where David climbs the arch next. Verse 4, Turn, O Lord, deliver my life for, very interesting, for in death there is no remembrance of you and Sheol who will give you praise. He's essentially asking if this is the end of the line 
for my life, if this is the end of the line, if it's over, so is my ability to praise you. So Lord, why is my life about to end? What David's doing is he's placing worship at the center of why he exists. You see that? You know, God is gathering a people who declare His excellencies, who, who are praising His name to live all of life and consider all of life an opportunity to place Him at front and center. Our intelligence, our affections, our decisions, our conversations. If David dies, his praise in this world dies with him. And this word sheol is an expression that places, it's the place of the dead. Of course, they had a different, what would you say, a malnutritioned understanding of the resurrection of the life to those to the eternal life and those to eternal, eternal death. But Sheol was an expression here that places less emphasis on the realm of the dead and more emphasis on the power and the stark reality of death itself. The depictions of Sheol in the Old Testament help draw this conclusion. It's described as a vast cavern in Ezekiel. It's described as a stronghold in other psalms. In Job, it's described as a wasteland. And in Isaiah, it's described as a beast of prey. And these are typical things that make a, an end to human life. Sheol. The word remembrance is paralleled with the word praise. Recounting God's great work in the world and going to him in praise of that work. That's the idea. So the issue at hand for David is will my praise be ended? How long is this going to last? Are you going to end my praise, O oh Lord? He's appealing to God, isn't he? So Lord, deliver my life from the grip of death itself. For the sake of your steadfast love, he says. This long-suffering, long-standing love. The love that God showed to Moses who delivered his people from Egypt. The love that God showed to Abraham by granting him a hope and a future through Isaac. The, God, the love God showed to Joseph as he rescued a nation and stood in the end as uh, half king of Egypt. See, the battery life in David's megaphone of praise is nearly depleted. Though his life is waning, he still recounts why he lives, praise, Church, this is why we live. We live to worship the Lord. Somebody ask you, young person, why do you, why, what's life about? To worship King Jesus. That's why we live. That's why we're taking a breath in here today. We live to worship God, and this is what David's pointing to. And so the question is, do you know this God who is worthy of worship? Do you know him? Have you come to him with the greatest problem of all, which is your sin? And if you found mercy in Christ, it's okay to ask with David, will this ever end? Will my praise be ended? And there's a third question here. Will they ever stop upending my life? See verse 7. My eye wastes away, as I rub my eye, my eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. And the eye preaches without words, don't they? When tears flow freely and the heart seems to be sputtering with pain, the eye 
The eyes fall in line like a swelling ankle reveals a tear or break. Swollen eyes often reveal a different kind of disruption. David's enemies, some of them loyal servants in days gone past, one of them a son of his very heart for which he would one day cry, Absalom, Absalom, who, who perished. Together these have compounded David's anguish. And if grief is not your companion today, what's this preacher talking about? If grief is not your companion today, tomorrow is a legitimate prospect. Life is full of trouble, Job wrote. Maybe you're a, a fresh cadet in this school. Maybe you're an old vet in this school of suffering and sorrow. It hurts all the same. We must grieve over our sin. That's what believers do. We must grieve over our sin. We should grieve over the sufferings of others. We often grieve over things we can't control. And like David, we can't help but to grieve over betrayal, especially by those who once stood with you in life's trenches. Lament is inescapable in this world. But like David, if the Lord is in sight, respite and meaning and joy are not impossibilities. Well, notice what happens finally in the text. David traverses this arch of lament, but then he begins his descent to, to firmer ground. Look what we hear, this cry of assurance in verse 8. This cry of assurance. Verse 8, depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard my, the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. He goes from being so broken to some sense of confidence, doesn't he? That his cries have not been in vain. His sorrows were not written off by his king who had more important things to govern. His troubles and subsequent agonies reached the Lord. Why did they reach the Lord? Because the Lord loved David. The Lord loves you, his people. He loves us, deservedly never, for him or for us, but steadfastly and unfailingly, yes. What mercy are in those four words, the Lord has heard. One commentator wrote, being listened to is so close to being loved that most people, that to most people, they are indistinguishable. Boy, that's true in marriage, isn't it? It's true in life. It's true with the Lord. We have the Lord's ear. We are his beloved. We're engraven into the palm of his very hand. And, and David's reminding us of this here. Those four words, the Lord has heard. The grace David asked for has now been given to him. It's penetrated his perspective. The Lord himself has heard the sound of the king's weeping. And weeping needs no interpreter in the world. It's understood in every dialect. And to know that it's understood perfectly and translated without error by our Father in heaven is an expression of His great love for us. Charles Spurgeon, sentence by him on weeping here, ministered to me some months ago. He wrote, let us learn to think of tears as liquid prayers. 
and of weeping as a constant dripping of intercession which will wear its way right surely into the very heart of mercy. You see what drops of water, how it wears out the rock over time. What a, what a good picture Spurgeon gave us. David is sure that in love God hears even the groans deep within. I think Paul read the Psalms, didn't he? Brothers and sisters, let's share in David's assurance here. And backing up a bit, see those words depart from me. Those sound familiar if you know your Bible. Matthew's gospel echoes Psalm 6. I never knew you depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. At judgment, at the judgment, in the end, the sovereign Jesus will exercise his might by expelling workers of evil. And here David is exercising his sovereignty, carved out by borders. He's a king. He's exercising his sovereignty to do the same. So like the words of Jesus, we will hear in the future, David's enemies departing is a future event as well. Look at the tense. They shall turn back. It's not happened yet. But he has assurance. David has this moment of clarity and jealousy for the holiness and glory of God. Spurgeon again very practically comments, the best remedy for us against evil, an evil man is a long space between us and him. Isn't that true? And that's what David's saying. All my enemies shall be greatly or ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. The shame and the troubles these enemies have brought on David will be brought back on them eventually. The phrase in a moment expresses a suddenness. There will come a day, David is saying, when God will do two things. He will, bring in, he will, he will end things and he will mend things. He will make a quick end of all evildoers and in a twinkling of, a, of, an, in a, of an eye, God will mend every wound of his church that has, incurred, has been incurred by the, at the hands of her antagonists. And what's more, our lamentations will forever dissolve at the sight of seeing the Lamb of God seated on the throne. I want to see him. I want my troubles to disappear in the twinkling of an eye. And it will happen for God's people. For he is the reason that we could ever say with David, the Lord accepts my prayer. And you know why the Lord accepts our prayer? Because he, he hears his son. And we're in Christ. We stand on his merits. He's our mediator. Our union with Adam has been decimated by the work of Jesus. And our union with Christ is more real and more significant than any of us can imagine. Martin Luther nails it, pun intended. The moment I make myself in Christ too, I am all wrong. But when I see that we are one, all is rest and peace. Your church, you're united with Christ. He is in you, the hope of glory. You are with him. And nothing can change that. Not the coup of a son not the sin in my breast. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you know one in every three psalms is a lament? Maybe you didn't realize that. If we deeply believe the scriptures correspond to every reality in this world, then we must understand that 
cheap joys cannot be the daily commute from one experience to another. And there was nothing cheap or shortcut like about the assurance of these last three verses. The arch here was particularly steep. From many angles, David's life was layered with sorrow. He lamented, but so did the true and better psalmist. This temporary king grieved, but so did the eternal king of kings. David cried out for the Lord to move against his enemies. Jesus also cried out for all he needed to conquer our greatest enemies, sin and death and hell. Hear Hebrews 5, 7 again. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. When you pray with a lament in your mouth, you're also praying like Jesus. Yes, when you pray with joy in your heart, praying like Christ too. But we have the space afforded to us when we look at Psalm 6 to go to God with a broken spirit. And he will not despise this. He will not despise this. But I don't want to muddy the waters here. And let me, let me make a, just a little caveat. We live in a culture where authenticity is all the rage. If I just go before God and lay myself open and say what I want to say and get everything off my chest, then God will hear me and prize my requests and praises and et cetera, et cetera. As long as I'm always, as the young folks say, as long as I'm always keeping it real, then the Lord will understand. Well, most of that is true. Most of it. But notice why the loud cries and tears of Jesus were heard by God the Father. Look at the very last phrase. Because of his reverence. This word reverence is a word that communicates a conscientiousness of who is on the receiving end of our prayers. We're not coming to a shrink. We're not coming to our best friend since first grade. We're not coming to our spouse or even our pastor, we're coming before a holy and sovereign and good God, the one who towers over time and space, but the one who came forth for our good into that manger 2,000 years ago. And this is the one who shares our pain, and he's the one who's shaping us in the pain. We have to believe this. There is purpose in our weeping. The one who was broken on the cross brought us healing. This invitation to lament is not for us to conclude that it's always open season on God's character. Or it's not, this is not a permission slip to disregard or distrust God's purposes. Who we're crying to matters. And we must revere him and respect him with holy reverence. Well, our sin is troubling. Our hearts are duplicitous. Our minds get confused. Our emotions can take us for a ride like an airplane that's lost an engine. And we long for peace and we long for stability. 
And in none of this is the Lord surprised or unskilled to give us aid. And that's why we have psalms like this. Even after David's son Absalom dies, another worthless man tries, if you remember, tries to take David's throne. Sheba is his name. Well, there are times we go from trouble to trouble and back again. No, the circumstances before you aren't of the same shape and size. The change you desire is not the change you always receive. But if you are in Christ, if he is the potter and you are the clay, I want you to be encouraged today because you're never in idle hands. We wouldn't call a potter's hands idle, would we? They're massaging and working and shaping. Be encouraged by this. Just because you don't feel those hands doesn't mean that those bumps in your road aren't a section of His remodeling and construction. The unexpected dousing of your plans may be for your growth. The element of His darker surprises may be the best way for you to see His light and truth and wisdom. The food of disappointment may be the nourishment for a strength that you're going to need one day. And this is God's way with His children. Out of the dungeons of lament, God indeed carves out pathways to His one and only Son. So, cry out in sorrow, church. It's okay. Cry out for relief. And remember from this psalm who is on the receiving end of your pleas, the God of all grace, the God who's worthy to be praised forever, the God who displays enduring love to His people, and the God who sent His Son to not only sympathize with our weaknesses, but to share in them. That makes a difference, doesn't it? Understand that Christ understands all of you. So give Him all your emotion. Don't be timid in His presence. You're His child. Your children don't do that. They give you all their emotion, don't they? Give it all to Him. And in mercy, He'll not overlook the deepest moan you have or the loudest cry of your heart. Won't you pray with me? Okay. Well, thank you for Psalm 6. And I pray it would teach us and you would work deeply in, the, in us and you would help us to be more uh, free as we come before you in prayer and as we try to interpret all the, the nutty things happening in our, in our lives, in our hearts, in our families, in our culture, Lord, help us to come to you. And if we have loud cries and tears, may we not hold back, but may we pray a more full-orbed uh, way by giving you all of our emotion, giving you all that we are. And not hiding from you in, in any way. Thank you for the power of your word and the clarity of it. And I pray that uh, you'd be glorified in the, this time. In Jesus' sweet name we pray. Amen.